This sermon, What's in Your Prayers, was preached by Derek Overstreet on Sunday, December 26, 2021 at Sovereign Grace Church. Open up your Bibles, if you will, or click, slide, whatever you do, uh, to the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 23. We are, after a short break for Christmas, we are getting back into the book of Acts, and boy, in terms of the last Sunday of the year and the first Sunday of the year, I really love where we are at in the book of Acts. But as you're turning there, uh, I want to bring us in a little bit into what is going on in our text. But first, you know, if you, if you watch any television at all, you know that Capital One Bank, Capital One Credit Card, has created one of today's most recognizable taglines uh, in TV advertising. Okay, so let's see how many people know it. What's in your... See, look at that. Everybody watches TV. That's good, actually. Glad to see that. So it's good. What's in your wallet? On the last Sunday of the year... I want to end 2021 and launch into 2022 asking this question. What's in your prayers? What's in your prayers? There has been over this last year and will be in the new year fewer things more important than your prayer life. Much will happen in 22, just as it did in 2021. But fewer things will be more important to your walk with the Lord than your prayer life. And we all know this, but the truth is, as God's people, we should be characterized, shouldn't we, by a growing passion to pray both individually as well as collectively as a church. I actually love the way Charles Spurgeon captures it when he says, prayer has become an an essential to me, as essential to me as the heaving of my lungs and the beating of my pulse. In other words, the very things that sustain my life physically, to me spiritually, prayer has become. You know, this was true of the early church, and we've already seen this. Their impulse was to pray. You remember uh, in chapter 1, verse 14, the, 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 the promise of the Holy Spirit who would come and empower them to be witnesses beyond Jerusalem, really to the end of the known earth. And what did they do as they awaited that promise? Well, chapter 1, verse 14 says they devoted themselves to prayer. And then, and then we see in the second chapter, in verse 4, Luke, as he is celebrating key characteristics of the gathered church, over 3,000 people saved, and we have the church in Acts 2. And a characteristic was together they devoted themselves to prayer. We saw uh, a few weeks ago in chapter 3, verse 1, Peter and John encountered the cripple that God would heal, but what were they doing? They were going to prayer. Whether good times or bad times, the early Christians were passionate about prayer. It marked the early church. 
And that passion for prayer is on full display in a remarkable way in our text this morning. And I just want to remind you where we're at before we stand and read. Remember, this is not a good situation that we enter into in Acts 4. But the truth is, their trouble began the day before. We're still at the same moment when we were at the beginning of chapter 3. Chapter 3 and chapter 4 is a 24-hour period. And you'll remember that, that the day before, a crippled man, crippled from life, was healed by Peter, through Peter, uh, as Peter and John went to the temple. And seeing this healing, this man is dancing and leaping. Luke says he's praising God. There's a commotion. It's catching everybody's attention. And Peter breaks out into another brilliant gospel-centered sermon as he connects the dots of what just happened physically with the reality of the gospel spiritually. Like Pentecost, thousands were saved, Luke says. But unlike Pentecost, this time Peter and John, really the Lord's powerful work, the work of the Spirit, caught the attention of the religious power brokers. Peter and John found themselves arrested and before the Sanhedrin council being issued a no gospel preaching mandate. You want to talk about a mandate? Now there's a mandate. You will not preach or teach the name of Jesus any longer. Now, our text finds us, according to verse 23, Peter and John are back with their church family. They tell them everything that happened, and one can only imagine the comments and questions in our text. Wait, wait, Pete, what? You said that to the Sanhedrin? <laughs> you said, no, we will not be silent? John, what were you thinking when he said that? Were you kind of cowering in a corner going, oh, Peter, please ease up? Who knows? Who knows what questions were asked, but in light of what has just happened since chapter 3, it would be no surprise to us if we got to verse 24 and it read something like this, and when they heard it, their hopes were dashed, and they decided it was best for each to flee Jerusalem and return to their homeland. Or perhaps they could have said, and when they heard it, they set their hopes on a different approach. Well, they did neither. And what they did do and how they did it is both highly instructive and hugely inspiring for us this morning. Really, a gift. A gift to us as we end 2021 and begin 2022. So would you stand with me and let's read how these group of believers responded. Verse 23, chapter 4. When they were released, that is Peter and John, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priest and elders had said to them. And let me just remind you, because we're a few weeks Removed. Notice in chapter 3, verse 17. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them, Peter and John and the church, to speak no more to anyone in this name. 
That's what the chief priests and elders said to them. Now, verse 24, their response. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. May we be seated. Let's pray. O sovereign Lord in heaven, the one who knows all things, the one who ordains all things, the one who controls all things from beginning to end, the one who, who came to us by sending his son in human form, the very reason for the season that we have just celebrated. Lord, we pray and we ask that your spirit would be active, powerful in our midst now as we go to your word. Lord, we pray, we pray that you would work in your people, that your people might witness and endure and pursue all righteousness for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. There are three characteristics of this prayer that I want to draw to your attention this morning. The first one is this. As we see the early church gathered to pray, it's clear that in the midst of real trouble, they rested in God's sovereignty. It's the first thing I want us to notice about this prayer. They rested in God's sovereignty. Did you notice in verse 24 how they began their prayer? Sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord. Translation, the God who is on his throne, controlling all things, the one who is in complete control of our situation in every way. Oh, sovereign Lord. Now, now how do we... How do we see that? That's not just a title. 
That's not just a very pithy greeting or intro into a prayer. As they pray, we can see how they saw the sovereignty of God at work. Uh, You'll notice first, after acknowledging God as the sovereign Lord, they acknowledged his matchless power. Look at what they go on to, to pray in verse 24. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, and then notice what follows. Who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them? Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Those words there, verses 20. Five and 26, those words are from Psalm 146, specifically from verse 6. And if you're not familiar with Psalm 6, Psalm, psalm 146, it's a psalm that really, uh, uh, it, it brought assurance. It brought assurance to God's people that regardless of what they are seeing, regardless of what they are hearing, And regardless of what they are feeling about the world around them, about the things that are happening to them, about the prospects of their future, particularly as God's people, that their hope in God, that their trust in God would not be in vain because the Lord's reign is sovereign. It is supreme. That's what one Psalm 146 is all about. And once again, we're reminded that these early believers knew the word of God. It, it worked its way into their prayers. And in their own situation, the disciples are resting in a sovereign Lord by seeing his power and the threats of, in this case, particularly the Sanhedrin, in the shadow of the one who, as it says, created all things. The one who is sovereign over the universe. The one who created all things out of nothing. Listen, this is, this is amazing. This is amazing. It's hard for us to grasp, but, but Peter and John just stood before the Sanhedrin council. Right, 71 men that represented the highest authority in the Jewish world. What they said goes. And they have spoken about whether or not the church is to preach and teach in the name of Jesus. So their threats are not idle. But for all their religious authority and power... The church realizes they are not God and they cannot gag God. I wonder if some here in these prayers were reminded of Jesus' words in his ministry when he said, I will build my church. And not even the gates of hell can stop it. These These early believers, 
These early believers believed something about the God they belonged to. He was the sovereign Lord. And they realized that the authorities, they may try and control the events unfolding in Jerusalem, but our God is God. He is God alone, and none can outmatch his power. His power that, as Luke records, creates the earth and the sea and everything out of nothing. So the first thing they do is they, they acknowledge in their prayers the matchless power of God. But notice there's something else. They acknowledge God's perfect providence. That is his working in their situation. Notice what they go on to pray in verse 25. I'm sorry, I, yeah, verse 25. Who through the mouth of their father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his servants. Now, uh, earlier I said that, that, that those passages were Psalm 46. Uh, Psalm, 40, Psalm 146 was actually verse 24. This, however, is Psalm 2. This this. Uh, 26, why did, the Gentile, why did the Gentiles rage down to the end of verse 26? These words are from Psalm 2. And in its immediate context, if you're familiar with Psalm 2, once again, God is promising to Israel that their, their king will have victory over their enemies. Those very enemies that are plotting against them. Those very enemies that are raging. The surrounding nations against Israel that their purpose will be in vain because God has providentially set their course and he will sustain his people and preserve the royal line that eventually leads to Jesus. These early believers saw Psalm 2, these words that they prayed as a messianic psalm whose ultimate meaning related to their place and time in redemptive history. Notice the interpretation, in fact, and application of Psalm 2. Look at verse 27. This is their interpretation of those words from Psalm 2, verse 1, 2. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Notice, in verse 27, it's Jesus, not David, who is the Lord's anointed servant. And the surrounding nations are represented by Herod and Pilate, i.e., and Gentiles and Jews who plotted and raged against the Lord's anointed that we know ended up in what? The crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The crucifixion of the very one that they now proclaim is living and has ascended to the Father's right hand and is now their sole purpose of existence to testify to the transforming and saving power of his name. In verse 28, when they say all their plotting and raging, that includes Christ's death 
And here, recognizing and resting in the sovereignty of God, they are saying that, that Pontius Pilate, just as the Assyrians and, and just as the Chaldeans were merely instruments in the hands of God to bring about his purposes for his Old Testament people, so here, here, these who killed Jesus and including these who have threatened their existence, they are merely instruments in God's hands doing exactly what he had preordained to happen. Now that's the point of providence. We serve a sovereign God, and providence is the outworking of his sovereignty. To say that God is providential is to say that from beginning to end, he is at work in all things. All things, meaning all things, big and small, from beginning to end for one purpose, to bring about his intended purposes established before the foundations of the world to its fullness, which is ultimately his glory and his people proclaiming his glory in his presence. These people have been threatened to be silent or be imprisoned, as we will see as we go through Acts, to be silent or to be killed. And their interpretation is stunning. They are resting in a sovereign God whose power is matchless and whose providence a God who is working in all things. So they could say that, that their plotting and raging was in vain. You know how they could say that? The tomb is empty. <laughs> yeah. The tomb is empty. Jesus has commissioned his disciples. He has fulfilled the promise of pouring out the Spirit to empower them to be witnesses. The gospel is being proclaimed, and the day before it was just proclaimed, and thousands were saved. The church is growing, and they are graciously and mercifully a part of it. And all of this is not by accident, it's not by their strategies, it's not by their guts. By the power of God, according to the plan of God. Do you see this? Their perspective and their prayers began with what they believed about God. He is a sovereign, infinitely powerful, and completely in control of every aspect of my life, God. So what's in your prayers? What will be in your prayers in 2022? The second thing that we see here is that not only did they rest in the sovereignty of the Lord, but they relied on the Spirit. I want to just for a moment put, put ourselves in the shoes of the early church. Remember again, that, and, I, and I know I'm repeating this, but I think it's easy for us to forget as we approach Scripture. It's easy for, for us to, to, 
to forget the context these, this prayer is being said in. The disciples are being silenced. They are being threatened. They are being watched. Their freedoms, if not their very lives, are at stake. Parents like you, these people had families to think about and parents to care for. For those of you out in the workplace, they had careers to think about. For the young people here, younger people in our midst, they had their whole lives ahead of them. Like all of us, these Christians had fears of rejection. They had insecurities and doubts. These early Christians, don't make this mistake when you read the Bible. These early Christians were not super Christians. They were just like you and I, only in a different time. So what would you have prayed for if you were in their shoes? Sovereign Lord, give us a plan B. Sovereign Lord, remove all hostility from our midst. Sovereign Lord, send someone else to witness because this, this is getting too hard. Sovereign Lord, this is my temptation, strike them down. What would you pray for? Look at verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats, and this is what's amazing, and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Did this always blows me away. They prayed for boldness. They prayed for boldness. Boldness to tell their best friends that Jesus alone can save their hearts. Boldness to tell their Jewish parents Jesus is the promised Messiah. And if you don't see him, you've missed him. Boldness to tell their co-workers that the change in their life, the things that seem vir virtuous in their life are because they got saved at some time by grace, through faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. They ask the sovereign Lord who has all things, all resources, all methods at his disposal and loves, by the way, to answer the prayers of his beloved and they ask him for the power to run into the fire. 
He can give them anything that they ask for according to his will and purposes for them. I personally would have asked for no hostility and strike them down if that's what it takes. They pray for boldness to get back out there on the street. (laughs) They pray for boldness. They pray for power from on high, for heaven to come down. And as we will see, it did. (laughs) They pray for power to run into the fire as bold, faithful, persevering gospel witnesses. Don't, don't, Don't let this part of the prayer just go by. This is the most challenging part of the prayer for me. Now, notice how God responds. Verse 31. And when they prayed for boldness, my word there, and when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. Just just, just step back and imagine that for a moment right now. (laughs) Shaken. I used to live in Alaska. I've been in a few earthquakes. I know what it's like for suddenly the building to start shaking. That was probably nothing compared to this. And when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Listen. The book of Acts, especially the first 12 chapters, it records a unique time in redemptive history that must be considered in our interpretation and our application. In the same way that we don't expect flames of tongues from heaven and everyone speaking suddenly in foreign tongues, we we, we need to be careful of expecting the building to shake when we pray. Now, if God wants to do that, he will do that. He can do that. But he did it here. And the point is not, you know your prayers are answered if your house shakes. So please, don't apply it that way. We'll rebuke you lovingly. The point is, God's people prayed, and the power of heaven came down. God answered their prayers. And as if to say, I will fill you with my spirit and empower you with a power that you can't even begin to imagine. The building shakes and their boldness was the fruit of God's spirit filling them and empowering them to do that which he had called them to do. Proclaim the gospel even in the face of overwhelming hostility, resistance, and yes, personal risk. That's the point here. This is the sovereign Lord. When he fills us with his spirit, We are empowered to do that which we could never believe we could do in the Christian life. 
Again, here the immediate context is evangelism. But whether, but whether witnessing to your neighbor, speaking truth into the culture, or bringing a biblical concern to a fellow believer, can I just ask, do you feel inadequate and insufficient for those things? Of course we do. Because we are. <laughs> we are. We are in and of ourselves. And this is why, be it our gospel witness, service, endurance, or personal pursuit of holiness, we must see our need to be filled with the Spirit daily. Just as we saw in verse 8. Remember, these believers were already filled with the Spirit. And now, like in verse 8 and here again, they are experiencing a fresh filling of the Spirit. And if you're going, wait, wait, what? Well, this is the point of chapter of Ephesians 5, verse 18. You know what Ephesians 5, 18 says? It says, it's actually a command, to be filled with the Spirit. The tense of the verb there, filled, it describes a continual action. In other words, we could interpret Ephesians 5.18, you could translate Paul as if he said, keep being filled with the Spirit over and over and over and over and over and over again. Yes, you were filled with the Spirit the moment that you believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, but keep being filled with the Spirit. And here's why. I heard a wise pastor say one time, Christians are like cordless drills. To the power for the Christian life, it is not inherent and it is not inexhaustible. And we know that. Even if we don't know that from Scripture, we know that experientially, don't we? We need continuous, ongoing charging from an outside source. And that outside source is the third person of the Trinity. God, the Holy Spirit, who works in us and through us and for us with the very power of God Almighty, with the very power of the sovereign Lord, whose power is matchless, and who is at work in all things. How? How does that happen? Well, we answered this question two weeks ago. Prayer. And I want to read from our statement of faith again, just like I did before. You can get a free copy of this in the lobby. But on page 43, in this section, the empowering ministry of the Holy Spirit when Christ ascended, he poured out the Holy Spirit on the church, ushering in a greater experience of God's presence and power among his people. The Spirit transforms hearts by the miracle of regeneration and indwells all believers in abundant new covenant measure. The Spirit also desires to fill God's people continually with increased power for the Christian life and witness. 
To be filled with the Spirit is to be more fully under his influence, more aware of his presence, and more effective in his service. And here's our part. All Christians, therefore, must continually, Ephesians 5.18, seek to be filled with the Spirit by living and praying in such a way that invites the Spirit's work among us, actively longing for God to accomplish his gracious purposes in us and through us. Left to my own strength, left to your own strength, we are weak and insufficient to live as God calls us to live, let alone run toward the lost and the blazing fire of our culture. But the Spirit of God is sufficient. He is all sufficient. And so we are called to be filled continually with the Spirit for life and godliness that brings about great glory to God. And I can't promise that that when you pray that God would empower you for whatever it is he's calling you to, that the house will shake. If it does, please call me, because I like to use it as a sermon illustration. But God loves to answer our prayers. And what he calls us to, he is faithful to empower us for. So what's in your prayers? How often do you pray, Lord, fill me freshly with your spirit to have this conversation with my wife? (laughs) Fill me freshly with your spirit to discipline my kids. I don't want to act in my flesh and anger. Fill me freshly with the spirit to be bold and to reach out to that neighbor who's made it clear they're an atheist. And Christians are freaks. Don't go it alone. What's in your prayers? Finally, we see one more thing. And it's easy to miss this one, but it is, it is the appropriate place to end. They rested in a sovereign Lord They relied on the Spirit, and they were motivated by one thing, the glory of Christ. Look at verse 29 one more time with me. You probably noticed it. You guys are astute Bible readers. But if you didn't notice it, look what he says. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. What does he mean by that? The literal translation of the verb here, look, is concern oneself with. We might say, take note. In other words, they're praying, Lord, take note. Be concerned with their threats. Be concerned with their demands. Take note of what they're asking of us. 
The very thing that is the most important thing to you, the honor and the glory and the renown of your son, Jesus Christ, the one who entered the flow of fallen humanity to do the work needed to be done so that sinners like us could be saved by grace and have hope, not only in this life, but in eternity forever and whatever eternity means. They are saying, be silent. Be silent about the very purpose of all of history. Take note, Lord. Take note. Do you see what's happening here? They didn't say, take note of the danger for us, Lord. They didn't say, take note of what this could mean for some in our midst. They said, take note of your glory. They were motivated, not by their own well-being or success, but the glory of God and Christ in the gospel and his church. Do you see that? Take note and look upon their threats They want your son to be silenced. These people have been saved by grace. They've been brought together. They've been powered by the Holy Spirit. And yes, they are being tested not to live their best life now, but to be faithful to exalt and glorify the Lord and Savior no matter the cost. And they have one thing on their mind. Glorify yourself, Lord. Take note of what they're saying. In this case, they were being called to be faithful gospel witnesses for one thing, (laughs) the glory of Jesus. But you know what? This call is for every other manner of life as well, isn't it? Again, the primary application here is our witness. But the same sovereign Lord, the same Holy Spirit, and the same motivation of God and the gospel applies to every aspect of our life. Listen, Christmas is almost over. Well, Christmas is over. (laughs) Unless you got a gift for me you haven't given me yet, then you are welcome to run me down after the service. But Christmas is over. And you may have not been given the gift that keeps on giving all year long. Of course, you know what that is. It's the Jelly Club of the Month. I know you know that. But I think Acts 4, 23 through 31 is truly the gift that keeps giving all year long. Listen, we, I don't have to tell you this, but in 2022, you will be challenged. We will be challenged. We will be challenged to boldly share the gospel with our neighbors. We will be challenged 
to patiently endure suffering and injustice. We will be challenged to sacrificially give and serve your church. You will be challenged to thankfully embrace bitter providence. You know, that thing you didn't plan for. That thing you feel like you don't deserve. (laughs) That thing that in a million years you would have never written a story like that. But nonetheless, I got up this morning and I didn't think going to the doctor I was going to hear that report. But he said the C word. Or I got the phone call today and I never thought, I never thought that my father would die. I just thought he was invincible. But today before I went to bed, I got a call. My father died in his living room. Heart attack. We will be challenged to thankfully, whatever that is, embrace bitter providence in 2022. We will be challenged to humbly confess when we've sinned against one another and not overlook it or disappear because of it. We will be genuinely challenged to forgive someone who sinned against us. It'll happen. Sometimes that sin may even hurt bad. The list goes on and on, doesn't it? Whatever it is, in those moments, what will we pray? Well, let me say this. In those moments, will we pray? Will we rest in a sovereign God? Will we rely not on ourselves? Power of the Spirit. Will we set ourselves aside and do what God calls us to for His glory? Will we pray? And when we do pray, what will be in your prayers? I pray for myself and for all of us. It will be the sovereignty of our God the sufficiency of the Spirit, and above all things, the glory of Christ.